never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up. Yeah. We've listening to the Tom Fickman Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM. Your home for community radio. Salutations, New Haven. Salutations, world. We've got a show for you today. Oh my gosh, do we have a show that is, is so needed at this moment in time. Not only to discuss issues about men's health, uh, but, the, but the whole concept of this anti-woke movement and the individuals that we have on this show today are deeply committed to, to, to woke education, woke principles, and we should make it clear. Uh, the word woke comes from lead belly, uh, from the Scottsboro boys who were uh, convicted of a crime they did not commit, sentenced to jail before they were, they were allowed to be free, and Lead Belly wrote the song, uh, Stay Woke, in that sense. So I think some of the stuff will connect today, but I wanted to say thank you to Tom Pricklin uh, for 103.5 FN New Haven for this time, and for Harry, our engineer, who makes it all work. I'm going to begin by asking our guests introduce themselves. I'll, I'll start with William Ogergill, then we'll move to Sean Allen, and then we'll move to Anthony Gay. So William, can you tell us who you are, uh, what your passion is, and what your work? Uh, good morning, good morning. And, and again, uh, thank you, uh, good Dr. Uh, uh, Jesse Turner, for uh, allowing us to come on this program this morning in the absence of Tom Flicklin. Uh, we thank you so much. Um, again, my name is William Fothergill. I'm a, a counselor at the uh, Central Connecticut State University. Um, my focus and research and passion is looking at men's health equity issues. Um, I founded uh, our Brotherhood Initiative, which focuses on male student uh, graduation and retention um, and building uh, 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 the capacity of male communities. Excellent, excellent. All right, Sean, take us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Um, my name is Sean Allen, uh, senior. I am a firefighter, father of four children. I am the board chair of the National Parents Organization. I just chartered a chapter here in Connecticut in 2022. Um, we focus on the relationship between the parent and the child after dissolution of marriage and divorce. So where we where it is in the best interest for the child to remain active and consistent with both parents after separation. Yeah, and families are always stronger that do that. When that relationship is healthy, child's relationship uh, and status in the world is healthy, and so it is for uh, both parents. And that's not an easy, easy thing to do. So I'm interested in hearing all about this work. This work is good. And Anthony, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your passion and your work? Sure. So, so my name is Anthony Gay, and thank you for having us. I, I really appreciate this this opportunity to be with you. So, so my passion and my work is is really connected to fatherhood, fatherhood, fatherhood engagement, fatherhood involvement. In addition to that, like like Sean and, and uh, brother Father Gill, I'm also we're also connected to a group called uh, Chop It Up, in which I'm one of the founding members. I'm um, in the focus of that group is really to uh, find ways to help communities of color, particularly men of color, be the, be the best men that they can be, not only for themselves, but for their family and for the community. That's, that's focused. So we, so what we do collectively all, all sort of intersects uh, with, with Brother Father Gill's work and with Brother Sean's work. 
And um, I, I'm just, I just want to see fathers be as openly and as actively involved as they can in the lives of their children. Um, and, and, and that's what I've been committed to with the work that I've been doing. And, and, and the research is clear. Research is clear that the greater the involvement of fathers in the lives of our children, uh, 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 the better life is for, for our children. Whether it's talking mental health, physical health, education, the whole deal, and, and, and that stuff. So we're clear on that. And, and, and we should be clear on the fact that Black fathers have always been in the house, always participated, always been strong, despite mm -hmm. the media hype that kind of portrays a different image over there. But, uh, you know, I'm glad to have you have you here. So uh, if I before we begin talking about a little more about your work, uh, I wanted to, to ask each of you to respond a little to this movement in the nation from right wing, I want of a better word, white supremacists who are governors, Governor Abbott in Texas, um, Governor DeSantis in Florida. I know it's not Connecticut, but some of the very role models that you three gentlemen would hold up, William would hold up William Bassett. Uh, you, each of us would hold up Roberto Clemente, would hold up Hank Aaron. Uh, we would lift them and say, these are role models and these are people that we want our children to read about. But Duval County uh, has removed books about Hank Aaron and, and <clears throat> so that anti-woke thing. That's right, because when I look at, I was trying to look at the greater connection of how the four of us connect. So my work would be literacy. It easily fits into the work that uh, uh, Chop It Up is doing and Welcome to Reality is doing around media literacy. But but that concept right now, some of the work that, that you're deeply rooted in is under attack nationally. So a little response about um, its significance, because I find when I did the research this morning and last night looking up um, who you gentlemen were, I do know William, but the, but uh, Sean and Anthony, you, you were new to me, and I, I did my research, did my schooling, mm -hmm. and gentlemen are more than worthy, more than worthy. I'm honored to be in your presence, but I, okay. I, I think Let's just kick it off before we get into the nitty gritty, the bills and the stuff and the particular work about what it is, what it feels like to be a black male in a society that's trying to, might be, we have individuals trying to wipe out everything that's historically good about black men in this country. So maybe we'll begin with you, William, because you could take us to Bassett right away. Well, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave way to to to, to my brothers. So, so brother brother Tone or or brother Sean, you. So I'll, I can uh, say some words. When I started doing my research and a lot of the family structure, um, and I realized, like you said, um, doctors, that the family unit is probably one of the strongest units out there. They knew that if they destroyed the black family they would control power or keep that power, right? If you could break down the black man, you can keep, keep a certain control. You know, the, the, the black male is, is one of the most resilient and, and, and powerful um, human beings on this earth. And if we could do things to keep them back um, or the history, then they'll, they will continue to prevail. Um, and when they destroy the black family, et cetera, 
you started seeing how, you know, we started turning into the streets between, you know, the criminal rate, um, child support and what child support does um, by imprisoning black males who are predominantly affected. Um, but it's across the board. So if research and, and guided research and guided information is is, again, a, a very powerful tool. And if they take those away from us, they take the building blocks to know, A, who you are, where you came from, and what you can do with that information. Um, the more they keep that out of your 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 reach, the more they win. So it, yeah. that was very important to say, like, if we're asking certain these questions of why they're removing that thing, if you give people access to information, there's so much you can do with that information. Before we let Anthony tackle the question, let me just give you the image of what uh, the literacy curriculum looked like before now. That's the image, that's the Dick and Jane, Jane series. That's mm -hmm. pretty much the series that educated a majority of baby boomer Americans in the country. And mm -hmm. it was the void of color, it was the void uh, women were depicted as only being homemakers, uh, you know, the whole stuff. So yeah, we're not going back. All right, Anthony, do you have have a, a comment on this issue? <laughs> he doesn't have to. No, <laughs> no, I do. I, I do. Trust me, I do. <laughs> so, you He's know, getting I, fired up. Yes, Anthony. Yeah, and, and, and I got to get I, I have to get fired up. So, you know, I, I, I struggle with with, you know, wokeism, how they you know, how they sort of uh, I think they've wokeism has being woke has been hijacked from what it was and they turned it into something different. Right. So and, and when you think about like critical race theory and all of these states and places who feel as if uh, African-American history isn't important, it, it's like a dagger to the heart. Because to erase that is is erasing American history because they're one and the same. Our history is one and the same. You can't separate the two. And, and, and if you're worried that teaching children or adults about our ancestor and, the sl and, and slavery and all the horrible things that we had to overcome, if you're concerned that that is going to be a detriment to society, then what's the alternative? It happened. We, we, we have to realize that it happened and everyone's not walking around looking. This is a great question. <laughs> and, and like my brain, my, my brain is, is spinning in response to this question because I believe this is a personal belief. I believe that people think if we start to do that, it opens up a larger discussion for reparations because everyone else has received some form of reparations. So uh, there was reparations to, to the Japanese American people who had in World War II. All of their ancestors received reparations, right? There was reparations for when the, when Abraham Lincoln had to when he freed the slaves. There was there was the there was reparations, right? So when people lost property, there was reparations. When people were harmed, their ancestors got reparations. We were supposed to get forty acres and a mule, and we didn't. But then they gave people who came to this country who want to speak bad about the country, the Homestead Act, and we only wanted 40 acres and they got 160 acres for free. And 90, 93 million Americans 
who live in America today are recipients of the Homestead Act, right? So there's all this history that exists, good and bad about us. They won't. They don't even want us to tell the good. They you got to. They don't want us to to tell the good because they feel the telling the bad might make somebody feel guilty. There should be guilt for what happened. There should be guilt for what happened. And we're not here to blame. I don't think myself. And I I think I I think it's safe for me to speak to, to for brother Father Gill or brother Sean. Um, we're not blaming anybody living today for what happened. But what happened happened, and there needs to be some recognition. Of of what happened, you know. If if and, and I'm a big media guy, so I understand that there's a desensitization that's taking place about what's happening to black men because the, the, the what you hear is wow another black man was killed by the police, and then you wait till next week and another black man is killed by the police, and and it's 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 it's, it's as normal as a school shooter, and neither one of those is right. But there's a lot of attention about the school shootings. And there should be, but the same amount of attention should be uh, pointed to the murders that are happening and the fact that there's a history that exists about us that everyone should be aware of. Because I believe, and I'll close with this, I believe if everybody knew our history, people might look at us differently. People might treat us differently. We might treat ourselves differently because most of us don't even know our own history because it's not being taught. So Governor Malloy in 2021 or 2022, he, he passes this bill that says that black and Latino studies is to be taught in school systems in Connecticut. And that's a great thing, but they made it an elective. It shouldn't be an elective. It should be something that should be taught in every single school and not the choice of the student because it's the choice of the student. So if I'm a student, and I don't want to learn about African or Latino studies. I don't have to. And and I could go on and on and on about it, but I'll, I'll pass it over to Brother Father. No, no, it, it, it feed, it's going to feed right into our opening <laughs> questions over there. Because, you know, we, we one, yeah, part of that, and, and it's we're a bigger show than just the anti-woke movement today. Uh, but reparations is 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 what I believe is really the fear between by white supremacists pushing this so that because could you imagine empowered black families in America who got, let's not even say the 160 acres. Let's just say we calculated the what it would have caught what it would have cost, what 40 acres and a mule would be worth today. Mm -hmm. uh, we would have uh, an enormous, an enormous uh, uh, group of people with with new wealth and new power and new ways to emerge. And I, I think there's part of part of America that goes back to the days, and, and again, we're gonna move on to our question, but goes back to the days of slavery, the biggest fear of slave, white male slave owners were black males. That was their right. biggest fear, and they did everything they could to harness the profits off those enslaved peoples, uh, to brutalize them, to put them at fear, yeah. So reparations is one of the things but I'm going to move us now on to some questions. Uh, can, can I can I just quickly oh, yeah, because okay. I, I was just I just I just want to say just one little oh, bit. Oh, I thought you were just going to be quiet. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'm going to be as brief as I can because as as brother brother Tony said, you know, it's a it's a great question, and, and the question may take us you, you know 
more than the time that we have to answer. But I just want to I just want to throw my two cents in to, to the bucket. To, one of the things that we talk about in Chop It Up, we use this phrase quite often. That is, he who controls the narrative controls the hearts and the minds of a people. And that's, to me, what this is all about. It's about trying to control. And to me, the question is, what do you fear? See, I'm not going to come back to my response to, to, to any opposition of education, because to me, we're the keepers of our education. Education can't be between the hours that the child uh, enters the school and then the child leaves the school. Education must be fused into the community, because that's really cultural to Africans centered people. We're the storytellers. We're the keepers of our own history. And we have to get back to that. You know, I, I know as a child uh, growing up in Hartford, you know, when the artist collective was in the heart of the hood on Clark Street and being able to go there for, for 25 cents was the was the registration fee and you had access to African drumming and African culture and African art and African dance and African drumming. Because the community was the keeper of our history. So I'm not waiting for government officials or anybody else to be the keeper of my family's cultural identity and history. I think we lose when we do that. And we, and we certainly can't wait on, on just our schools alone. Our children only spend 13% of their lives in their in public schools. So what, what Brother William's talking about is that other 87%, mm -hmm. and that matters and that counts. So I'm going to get us into some of the topics that we wanted to talk today. So Brother William sent me a couple of questions. He said that I, I should uh, ask you on these, and we can respond individually or, or just one. It's up, it's up to you. But, but I think this question fits all three, can, can deal with it. Why is the health equity for men an important issue? So right now, we're not even talking about black men. We're just talking about men over there. So why is health equity? I thought we had equity, says the white man, right? Yeah. Go ahead. So uh, let, let's, how about we start with Anthony, we go to Sean, and we come back to William. So we kind of reverse it a little. Right. So, 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 so I, I'll, I'll be brief on, on this. So, so why is the health equity important? So, you know, we're losing, um, and, and so I'm going to sort of bring it back to, to black men. We're, we're losing black men at a, at, a, at a rapid rate for a number of medical conditions that are going untreated, right? So, and I, I'll, I'll say this, many of them uh, fear going to doctors. They fear going to doctors. So a part of what's happening um, is our diets are poor. When you look at where oftentimes, particularly those who grow up in inner city areas and don't have vehicles and cars and, and, and can't make it to the grocery store, they're buying food at corner stores. They're, they're living off of the food that they're buying in corner stores. That food is just tearing their bodies apart slowly. We don't realize it because we look healthy on the outside, but internally, we're really not, we're, we're not doing well. So, and then there's the, when something does, when there is an ache and a pain, we're fearful of going to the doctor sometimes because we don't want to know what, the, what, it, what it might be, right? So, so those things start to permeate within our body, but, but by not going and getting that checked up, we're taking ourselves and pulling our wells, potentially away, pulling ourselves away from our families. 
So, so we have to do a better job of looking at ourselves and educating ourselves. And as, as Brother Fothergill just said, you know, and chop it up, we check in on each other and kind of encourage other to check in on yourselves and get that colonoscopy and do those things that typically we wouldn't do because we need to be here for each other, for our families and for our community. And I'll, I'll, leave, I'll pass it on to whomever you want to go to next. Perfect. Now we'll go, we'll go to Anthony. Anthony, take this on. We're going to come back to the question that that's dear to Anthony next. But for this one right now, Anthony, I'd, I'd like you to comment on that piece too, because uh, for some people, uh, there's a myth that men have equity in their health and almost no one. You, today is one of the few times I'm engaged in a conversation about uh, black equity help for black men. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is an opportunity, to, and we've got a firefighter to take us there. Can't do better yeah. than that. Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you this, and, and I always tie everything that I talk about back to family. Um, it's access to education, number one, and access to, when we talk about generational wealth, generational wealth is not just finances, it's access to knowing about health. It's access to going to the doctor. When we create social norms inside of the household, we're more likely to check up and, and check in on ourselves. You know, when we don't have that, in our households and we don't have that within ourselves to say, Hey, you know, and health stems to mental health. You know, the big component to chop it up is black men not knowing that their mental health is probably one of the most important, you know, you know, sound minds, sound body. I had a, a young man and I see a lot of stuff at work as a firefighter, but I had a young black male, he was 32 years old and we got called for a man struck by a train and he, went and sat on the train tracks on the express tracks and the train just, you know, just ripped them apart. So I was outside covering body parts up with towels to hide from the public. And then when I came back to the group and I realized what we take for granted is the mental health aspect of us. And we talk about trauma and what trauma does to us as far as stress that causes problems within the body. Um, stress in the, you know, just mind, the mental health aspect of what we deal with. Um, but stress is a number one component of where all these other problems with inside of you start taking place. And we have these generational stress and generational trauma. Um, and Anthony talks a lot, to, a lot about uh, with his epigenetics, that it's passed on, passed on. And this leads to heart conditions. This leads to the way we, um, feel inside, you know, our bodies, you know, our raised cortisol levels, um, all these different other problems that stem just from stress alone, you know, just sitting out, meditating, taking time for yourself, going to the doctor, checking in on yourself for mental health. Everybody knows you ask anybody, do black men get therapy? And the usually answer is no, that's, that's not something normal for us. So when I had a group like chop it up and I met brother father, Gil, brother tone, just to talk, that does so much for your body as well. It's like, you know, the mental health aspect is, you know, the, your body's so resilient. If you put it up here, then you can correct a lot of these things that go on within your body. But we fail to take um, the precautions to deal with our mental health. And then the stress kind of deteriorates everything else. Perfect. Thanks. Thank you, Anthony. William, do you have something you'd like to add to this? Yeah, you know, because I mean, I th- I think this whole conversation that we're going to have today is really about equity. 
and, and, I, and I challenge the, you know, the viewers to really think about how they define equity, because we live in a culture that I think confuses equity with, e with, with equality, and they're different. They're mm -hmm. different concepts. So when we begin to talk about men's health issues or the issues facing uh, men, usually there's a, a reactive response. There's, there's the questioning. There's the debating. Every other group can put their issues on the table. But when we begin to really specifically talk about men, all of a sudden the conversation ends. The reaction ends. But we have a reactive response to it because we're always pointing out the flaws in the uh, 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 challenges in society that impacts men. So we have a mop it up mentality. We want to mop up all of the stuff, but we don't want to really think about the equity issues and how those equity issues can transform our families and our communities. One of the things that we say in the brotherhood, we have this uh, perspective that if we can have healthy men, then we can have healthy families. And if we have healthy families, we can have healthy communities. And if we can have healthy communities, we can have healthy nations. And if we can have healthy nations, we can have a healthy world. So we have to begin to start looking at these equity issues as it relates to health. Men. Uh, 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 are disproportionate in pre th those preventable diseases. When we look at the crime, preventable, a lot of this stuff is preventable. The, the, the reaction of how we market and how we promote services to men. It's not that men don't want services. It's not that men don't want to be engaged. Sometimes we got to look at how we engage men. If we don't engage men in an inclusive way, for example, we call some of our clinics, you know, mother and family clinics, child and, 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 and women programs, but then we leave out the conversation about the father, we leave out the conversation about men, and then we expect men to show up when we've treated men in a distant way. This is about equity. Equity is about the fairness of responding in a just way to the crisis that, that's impacting men. And it's not just men of color, white men too. All men are suffering. But, but disproportionately, when we begin to start looking at the issues impacting uh, uh, black men, again, we have a blame it perspective. We have a critical perspective and not seek to truly understand what the dynamics and what the structures are that impedes their ability to be the healthy men, the healthy fathers, the healthy sons, the healthy brothers, the healthy cousins that they have the capacity to be. So again, to me, the conversation about uh, fathering issues or how we respond to our, bo our, our boys and our adolescents is a men's health equity issue. And this leads us right into the next place we wanna go. And we wanna move to you, Sean, and the work of the National Parents Organization, the legislative work that they're, that they're doing. Uh, and so the question there becomes, what are the myths and misconceptions about black and brown fathers? And then you can connect it to some of the legislation for us that, that uh, you're proposing this year. Absolutely. So uh, just the, the history of the National Parents Organization founded in the late 90s 
Um, and it was to keep the the child, we're child focused and research based. So we specifically focus on um, protecting the rights of the child, and that could be for a mother or a father. When I joined on in uh, 2022, I started doing a little more research, and I looked into the family dynamic and the fragmented family within the black. Because um, <clears throat> I looked at who was affected the most, and I saw black families were. Um, and we go all the way back to the Moynihan report. I don't know if you're familiar with the Moynihan report. But he specifically talked about the Negro family and how poverty back in the 60s is going to continue and, and turn into what it is now if we don't fix the dynamic of the black family. And we looked at matriarchy and where um, they were taking the fathers out of the home, labeling them as um, insignificant, you know, where they married them to the state through welfare and saying, listen, in order to get welfare, we have to keep these fathers out of the home. They're taking the black male and they're making them one of the most insignificant beings within the community, in society. So by doing that, we A, control the power over the black family. We keep them behind in all other aspects of life. So it's pushing them into the criminal courts. When you look at child support, if you don't pay your child support, where do you end up? In prison. Majority of black males are in prison for child support. We had um, the brother that got shot in the back. Uh, by a cop. He was running. Um, it was Walter Scott. He was running because for fear of going back to court for child support. I mean, these are things that are uh, that are trending throughout our community. And the way we're looking at mail, the, the myth of the absent black father, the deadbeat black father. If you go to the CDC, the CD shows that black fathers are the most involved fathers in their children's lives. I mean, these are statistics that are when we talk about controlling the narrative are not being pushed. They're not being pushed because they want to keep this family dynamic separated. And what we decided to do is say, you know what? Let's look at who affects the most. And we're going to push a bill. This is a, a bill for a rebuttable presumption of 50-50. Majority of our families that are going into the court system, they don't have access to wealth. They don't have access to money. Lawyers. Everybody knows you go to court, it's a winner and a loser. And it's the justice you can afford. So if you don't have access to a lawyer and the majority of our fathers are pro se, and these are mothers as well, they go in there and they're not getting the justice because there's no equity, number one, in the court. Number two, these implicit biases from the judges that go in and say, you know what, he's a black male. He's not going to do anything better for society. He doesn't care about his kids, this and that. They're going to give that kid to the mother. Now it per perpetuates fatherless homes. All these things, when we talk about education, where we're lacking, pushing young men into the street because they don't have these fathers in their, in their home. You know, they're turning to gains for families. They're turning to other opportunities. And we're taking these opportunities from them based on the myth that there's the absent black father. You don't hear the absent white father. You don't hear all of these other things, the absent white mother. It's specifically... When you label something, then society is growing up miseducated and they're already saying that, no, you're absent. You're a black father. You're absent. That's the that's what we're focusing on. That's the narrative that's been painted. And I mean, all the work that Brother Father Gill has done, Brother Anthony Gay has been done. You know, it's just having to beat in people's heads over and over and over again that what you think about the black male figure is wrong. And. You know, the media will paint this picture and they will keep that picture there. And they want you to figure that. You know, you turn on the, the news, you see, you know, black men getting killed in the streets. They wanted to keep that narrative. But let something good happen. 
and you hardly see it. Let somebody who does something as a father happen, you barely see that. So by creating this equity within law, it removes the implicit bias from the judges, from the lawyers, and it gives them a 50-50 starting point without having to pay for a lawyer. I mean, if you know the, uh, the racial wealth gap, we talked. We just talked about that and how, you know, even Moynihan said it, when, when you had the civil rights movement, liberal, you know, being free is not equal. Just because you had 400 years of slavery and then you say, all right, you guys are free. That doesn't make, we're, make us equal. There's still obstacles and hurdles and all this other stuff we have to get past, the systemic uh, uh, issues that are keeping us behind in all aspects that we still have to overcome, you know, with redlining and all this other stuff. It's so much, it's so deep, deeply rooted that just because you put two people on the same, you know, starting point at the, at the, at, at the, uh, at the race doesn't mean they're going to finish the same. And that's where we're falling into over and over again. Yeah, yeah, I just, I just want to echo something because I, I just want to amplify a point, a point that brother Sean made that, that the evidence is overwhelming mm -hmm. that black fathers are the most engaged in their children's lives out of all groups. But yet you turn on TV, you listen to the radio, you listen to the conversations at the water tank, and we villainize black fathers. And, and for fathers, the celebration of fathers is single heads of household fathers is one of the fastest growing family systems. But we don't talk about it. We keep talking about the absent father and the father not there. So, so when do we have these equitable conversations about those fathers who are fighting for their ch the, 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 the ability <laughs> to be involved in their own children's lives, to have equal opportunity to be invested in the development of their own children. They're already doing it, but you, we don't recognize it. Mm -hmm. So why, why do we want to spit narrative? So, so we, this is why we're here today, because this is the conversation that we must have conversation that offers us a promise, promise of hope. And just before I'm going to go to Anthony with uh, the next question, but just before that, I, I want to give us an example of, of a take on systemic racism, how it works. In 2015, I walked 400 miles from uh, Central Connecticut State University to Washington, D.C., protesting the $2 billion spent annually on standardized tests. That's not the piece today but what, that we're talking about. But when I, I was in the Bronx, Principal Jamal Bowman uh, uh, of CASA Cornerstone Academy of Social Action in the Bronx, and now he is the congressman for the uh, 16th district in the Bronx. But Jamal came out and when I was walking, often I'd be on my own walk and talk to teachers or some families along the way. But he brought the whole school out, see that. And then we were having lunch. And this is the part that I wanted to talk At lunch, we, Jamal's philosophy was in, in New York, everyone takes the region's test one grade at a time. So the schools would give the other grades off. He ran a middle school. He said, I'm not giving them off. This is the time to enrich my students. I'm going to send them up to, you know, uh, Connecticut. I'm going to send them to the parks. We're going to do that. So they, they joined me on the walk that day and we played some soccer. I'm 
World Cup fan, and so um, I may be old, but I could kick the ball a little. And uh, <laughs> yeah, just a little. But we were having a great time, and it was a, a great little kid, little Dominican kid, you know. And we're having lunch, and so I'm saying, "Wow, that young man's got a future." And not that he's more than just the the sport, you know. But but just looking at at uh, the way he handled the ball, and so I said, "Yeah, we." You know, he's exactly what, what what Fordham University and Columbia and Central and all the university, Harvard and Yale, they're gonna want this young man. And there was a, a on the on the day when we're having lunch, the school economics teacher was there, and he was from the Dominican Republic, and 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 he said, uh, Dr. Turner, you're thinking thinking that the purpose of education, you're thinking that they want us to to lift each other. I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to be honest with you. If the child becomes successful, he may make 50 to 100 to $150,000 a year in his life, but that's his money. He controls it. And he said, I'm of the opinion that we're going to profit, society profits more in incarcerating that young man and all the young men like him so that it becomes all 50,000, all 100,000 to incarcerate is geared, given profits to others and that that person earns nothing, no control. So that that little piece, I think, is just in the background. But I want to come to Anthony. And Anthony, uh, I, I want to understand this concept because I know, I, are we failing boys and men? Are we failing black boys? Are we failing black men? I, I think I know what you, I have an idea what you say, but I think I need to hear it from you because your work rooted in Chop It Up and rooted in welcome to reality. Uh, I've, I've, I've done the research, I've looked at it, the gathering space, the safe place to have these conversations, bringing people together. It's probably how all the three of you started getting together. So could you tell us, are we failing our boys and our men today? So I think some of us are, it, it, some of us. I, I, can't, I can't put that blanket statement on everybody. I can say within Chop It Up and other groups that exist, like Chop It Up, um, our goal is to, is to. I just need to go back, and I'll come back to this question if you don't mind, because because there was something there was something that was said. Because I think sometimes when we have these when we have these type of discussions, people perceive them as hyperbole, like we're just over exaggerating things that exist. And 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 when we talk about equity, and then I'll I'll come right back to, um, are we failing? I just want to point out some facts, and I'm just going to speak about me. And Sean, brother Sean has experienced this, and many other men have experienced this. When my wife was born, I mean, when, when my son was born, right, um, at Yale New Haven Hospital, we, I, I come off this elevator, and, and Brother Father Gill made reference to this earlier. As soon as you walk out of the elevator on the third floor, there's a woman and children's center. Women and children's. So, so think about that. This, what, after, my, after my son was born, the health department came in, and they had this form that they wanted to have, uh, they can have access to my, my son's health records. So my wife wasn't feeling well. So I'm filling out the form. And when I get to the bottom of the form, it has a line for mother, but no line for father. But there was no place for me to sign my name. The next day they come in, there's this program that is Connecticut Reads. So you fill out this form and they send you a book every couple of months until your, your child is three years old. I fill out the form, there's no place for me to put my name, right? I fill it out for my wife. They come in with the birth certificate. There's no place for me to, 
put my name. So there's exclusion after exclusion after exclusion for being in the hospital three days. I've been excluded three times as a father in three days, not counting, not seeing a father in children's facility, right? When I, my son is on my insurance, I take him to his medical appointments. When they, make, when they call for a new appointment, they call my wife. They don't call me. I drop my son off and pick my son up from school every single day. When, the, when my son fell off the monkey bars, they called my wife. So it's not hyperbole when we talk about like the separation, how people see fathers versus mothers. I, I don't know another father other than Sean and some of the other brothers on Chop It Up that are as active as we are. We're active fathers. But for some reason, there's this thing in society that we're not as important. And this is, this is the last thing that I'll share. In the state of Connecticut, if a mother becomes homeless, if she becomes homeless, there are multiple women and children facilities. So that family won't, won't be separated. But Sean, being a single father, has his daughter. He falls on hard times. He becomes homeless. There's no male in children's facility. So see that see how there's uh there's not equity, it, 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 and it really doesn't exist. And there's a shortage of services. If you call or look on two one one in Connecticut and you pull up all the motherhood services versus the fatherhood services, it will blow your mind. It's not even close in comparison. Exactly. So 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 I say that to say, are we failing as fathers? We have limited resources that are available to us, right? And oftentimes as single fathers, many of them have to work. So they're not as actively involved as they choose to be. So, so they're left to the whim of a program or someone else if mom is not actively involved to try to figure it out, right? So, so that's one piece. And then at, in terms of the failing piece and chop it up, all we do is talk about strategies and ways that we can uplift these young men. And I'm just gonna say this because it's the truth. Young men today in Connecticut and other inner cities are scary. And, it's, and, and they're scary. And it's scary, they're scary because they haven't been educated about who they are, their value, their worth, the need for them to grow up to be strong young men. The media and other systems have an expectation for them to become the dollar signs that you mentioned. Because there's a thing called the, uh, the prison industrial complex that is now on the New York Stock Exchange. So when you connect prisons to profit and the stock exchange, how do you think that system's going to work to flourish to generate the money it needs to make more to make more money? So mm-hmm. so so when when you made that statement, it just hit me in the gut because I, I I feel I just can only speak how I feel, and despite what the statistics to say, which supports that black men are disproportionately treated in all systems. In all systems, and, and and there's a breeding ground. There's a breeding ground in many depictions that show you young men walking right out of, right out of a school, right into a prison, right into a prison. And it's unfortunate that that the system is set up this way. So as much as we want to try to help and not allow these children to fail, I think there's a larger system that's designed for our children to fail. And that's the unfortunate piece. And we can do what we can do on top it up to try to overcome it. And we'll continue to do that. And we hope that we get additional support, assistance and help, but it's bigger than chop it up. Trying to resolve this issue because it's such a vast issue to, 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 uh, to undertake. 
Exactly. So I think it's time because now we've, we've had a perfect conversation that brings us up to these two pieces of legislation over there. So I think, Sean, you should be the person that takes us on the legislation and everybody can feel free to comment in there. We've got probably about another 12, 14 minutes to go. So keep that conscious in your mind. I don't want to miss the legislation over there because this is active, this is doing, and this is exactly where we should be going. Absolutely. You want to, are you, you want to pull it up or you just want me to talk about it? Uh, Harry, can you pull it up for us? So when Sean talks about it, he could maybe we'll, uh, William put one of the links in the chat box. Don't worry. Go, go, go ahead with it. Sean, the link is in there and we'll put the other link in there too. So we have bill um, 5342, which is the rebuttable presumption of shared parenting. That means between two fit parents. That means when we talk about fit parents, that means there's no history of abuse between the child and the parent, no history of abuse between a domestic violence allegations, et cetera. Uh, but we're looking at two fit parents and the court would have to deem the parent unfit in order to move the rights, responsibilities, the cares and duties of that parent. And what this does is kind of evens the playing field, right? We don't want to fail like we talked about failing our children, number one. Um, so what we're doing is we're putting measures in legislation to where now when you go in there, you have equitable rights. And that's where it needs to start. There's a lot of ambiguous language within the laws that we have now. And, and there's a chief judge, uh, Robinson, who goes around talking about implicit bias but in his own courts. So you're talking about discussing implicit bias within the courts. Knowing that implicit bias is subconscious, that means we could take these tests over and over, day in and day out, and we're always going to get a different answer. So if we understand that, and, and the, the most interesting thing about it is if you look at, and I just said this, I was on another show before I got on here, if I killed somebody tomorrow, I would get a jury, a properly vetted jury, they would go in and make sure that these people don't contain their own uh, uh, explicit biases. They have 12 people who say, you know what, we're going to use 12 people to weigh in all the facts, the evidence, this and that, and make a decision based on that. I get more rights as a murderer than I would as a parent. So I have one person here deciding on whether I should see my children every other weekend or see my children uh, 50% of the time. And then we say, if you deem these people, you have parents going from having their children all the time to every other weekend and a couple of dinner visits. If I'm good enough for that, and there's no history of violence or domestic abuse, this and that, I should be good enough for 50-50. So what this bill does is kind of, it makes it, it's a strong piece, number one, because of who it predominantly affects, and that's the minorities who we have here, again, with the Civil Rights Act, you can free a people, but we're not equitable. And without law and legislation and these strong, these strong bills that prevents the, the implicit biases that we all go against, these are the measures that we need to take and we need to step up. Because I see a lot of a lot of our people ready to go and ready to complain, but you have to be in these legislative offices. You have to know who you're voting for. You have to know and 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 challenge and hold these legislators accountable say, hey, we have a problem here and there's a, I have a way to fix it and here's a way to fix it. And this is at no cost to the taxpayers because every time one of us is in prison, this and that, that's costing the taxpayers. 
So if anybody should, should be furious, it should be these taxpayers who say, hey, I'm paying taxes and all you're doing is putting people in prison that's costing me more money. Whereas this is ways, you know, look at all these programs who are, who are great programs, but we spend a lot of money on programs that put Band-Aids on something that we need to put a tourniquet on because our children are bleeding. And then what they're bleeding is they're bleeding all this, all this emotional you know, abuse that they have to endure. All of this, you know, why are my parents not seeing me? A parent, the child doesn't care about if dad is paying money. That child, and I'm sure, you know, Brother Anthony could tell you, Brother Father Gil, say, I just want to see my father. I just want to see my mother. I don't care about what they buy me. I don't care about who they are as a person outside of our relationship. Like these are the strongest units that we have that we are, we're, we're missing out on. So this bill right here is important. We've passed this bill in three other states. That was, um, that was a uh, Kentucky, Arkansas, and West Virginia. Connecticut can and will be the first Democratic state to pass this bill, which would be a, a, national, a, a national and historic win for us, but it changes the lives and outcomes for our people. And that's what we want to focus on. So we are meeting with legislators. We've pushed this bill. We have 12 representatives who've signed on. Uh, Minnie Gonzalez and Juan Candelaria sponsored the bill. It's co-sponsored by Robin Porter, who's a strong advocate. Um, we have other co-sponsors, uh, Senator Henry Martin, who stepped up to the plate. So it's a bipartisan bill. I mean, this bill can be passed, but we have to make this 2,000 bills that go out. So they're in and out. They're not thinking about certain things, but the more... We stress importance of certain bills, the more action we get behind this. So we're we're pushing legislators to pass this bill and to and, and, and give us a chance at helping our communities, because if not, we're just failing. Like you said, that, that one question, are we failing our children without legislation? Yes, we are. So so this is a bill we want to support. We want and we're going to talk about it next week at Central as well. I believe at, at, we'll, we'll be doing that. Take us to the next bill, because this is this is a you're like a good fighter and a good fighter doesn't have one punch. It's like I got a one, two and probably even got an uppercut coming. <laughs> but take us to the next bill. And Harry, could you pull up the fifty nine eighty six as Sean talks about it? Yeah, I'll talk about that bill. That, oh, that, OK. All right. You can yeah. take us through that. Uh, uh, again, in, in our cries for equity, for health, um, for for and to me, I look at it as is community and family health. You know, it, it's easy to say it's about men, and it's really not about men. It's about the family systems. It's about our the structures of our communities. Um, because as I said said before, when we create healthier men or women, we create a, a dynamic that that impacts our communities in a healthier way. You know, uh, um, this uh, House uh, Representative Bill. This is a congressional bill that looks at the establishment of um, looks at the establishment of an, uh, an office of men's health, um, again, in parity with the office of women's health that already has existed. Some form of this bill has floated around our Congress for years and mm -hmm. still has not passed. Um, even within our state, we have uh, questioned the inclusion of of a, um, um, a, a, a men's health component within the commission of women, children, seniors, and equity. Um, and we've gotten pushback, you know? So, so again, this, this is a broader bill on, on, the, on the federal level, again, that, that, that will establish 
an entity whereby we can look at the health disparities impacting men in a broad way and, and, and begin to align legislation and uh, align supportive support, uh, support services to address some of these things before they become uh, 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 problematic infused within our, 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 our communities. So both of these bills are so important and, and we really need uh, the, the community support. You know, these bills are, he are here, you know, people can look at them within their own time, but it's really important that, again, if we really want to establish healthier families and healthier communities, that we begin to, to, to support some of this uh, legislation that has been out there as well as some, 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 some of the new. Lastly, I just wanna say something about Brother Sean and Brother uh, Anthony and, and many of the other men out there that's listening. You know, um, it, it, it has been an education for me to listen to men in their stories. And one of the things I always do is I champion men to tell their stories. Um, because a lot of times we don't hear about the stories of fathers who are trying to be the best fathers they could be. And, and, and to me, it's important that those stories are told because it humanizes the experience. That men, they bleed, they suffer when they're disconnected from their children. And we have structural systems. Let's come back to your question, uh, 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 Jesse. You know, we have structural systems that keep uh, uh, fathers out of the lives of their children. And this is what we need to begin to start looking at and dismantle. And that, that's not just a father issue. That's a community issue. We all need to be able to facilitate conversations where we can address these issues collectively because the focus is on the children. How do we begin to develop healthier children when we have a fractured system that works against it? Perfect, perfect place for us to start coming to an end. And, and I, I wanna mention that stories the time that we come together, that we talk, wanna, and, and I too work with young people, and they're not having that time. Uh, being on the phone, clicking on the phone is not the same as sitting in the room, sitting face to face, sharing a cup of coffee, engaging in a critical dialogue, or, or just having some, some, some just brotherhood talk uh, in that sense. So those stories are what holds the people strong. Those stories, and the more diverse, those stories, the more powerful our nation is. And we do have a movement in the country that's trying to silence stories of, of men and particularly uh, black men and boys, definitely out there. Uh, so uh, I think Harry's telling us we got 60 minutes. You can say, everybody could say goodbye quickly. That will work out. And how about we do that? Uh, Sean, just a quick little goodbye. Just want to thank you, uh, Dr. Jesse uh, Turner, for having us today, and um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. We're we're family now. All right. <laughs> All right, Anthony. Little goodbye so, for everyone. So I'm going to say the same thing. I know we're family, but anytime somebody got doctor in front of their name, I need to acknowledge it. So, Dr. Jesse, I I really uh, appreciate um, you having us on the show and giving us the opportunity to talk about this critical issue. So, thank you so much. We appreciate it. I hope you have a great weekend as well. I will, and we're going to see each other next week.
because now I know I can't miss that event. <laughs> Williams, you got to give us a little quick goodbye. I think again, goodbye, and again, Dr. Jesse. You know, you 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 you're a wonderful person. Thanks for those that listen in. And again, we hope to see everybody on the 22nd at our program at Central Connecticut State University. Starts I I at five o'clock. Better go in the right direction In the moment you stressing But you gon' be counting blessings And I know that for certain Keep on working Open curtains Haters swerving Cause they ain't ready For your final version Whoa. I'm never gon' give up Give up Fall down I just gotta get up Get up yeah. Cause this is my road Let's camera action I'm ready to go I'm never gonna give up Give up Fall down I just gotta get up Get up